Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, we're going to be looking at The Undefeated, which is a relatively new website covering the nexus of sports and race and culture. Then we're going to turn to what has been an insane week in journalism, focused around the Trump press conference and the release of a dossier of unverified information about the new president. Um, we'll be led in that discussion by Dave Uberti, CJR's senior Delacorte fellow. So, Dave, have you ever seen a week like this? Well, as a crotchety young man, I haven't seen too many crazy weeks like this. I'm a crotchety old man, and I've never seen a week like this. I mean, just the, um, the level of attention on journalism and just the level of speed at which the story changes day after day has been, it's, it's astonishing. My head has been spinning this entire week. Yeah. And um, it's been great for CJR because we've been able to sort of weigh in in a critical way. We'll, we'll talk about that later, right? Yeah, definitely. We have a couple of good segments coming up. All right. Well, off you go. And once again, thanks for kicking it with us. As Kyle said, I'm Dave Uberti, staff writer for CJR. we got a great show for you this week, and I am joined on it by Pete Vernon, Delacorte Fellow and friend of the podcast. Hello, Pete. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. Hell of a week. Hell of a week. And making her kicker debut is Carlette Spike, also a Delacorte Fellow for CJR. Carlette, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So we wanted to start first with a very interesting project out of ESPN. We are obviously transitioning from our first black president to a president-elect who ran on an arguably implicitly racist platform. At the same time, we have sports, which are such a huge part of American culture, becoming more and more overtly political. We have guys like Colin Kaepernick, for example, San Francisco 49ers quarterback, who's been making continuous political statements throughout the NFL season, and there are many more examples uh, in that same vein. During this interesting time in sports and culture, ESPN launched a new project called The Undefeated, which is a website covering the nexus of race, sports, and culture. Carlette, you wrote a very interesting article on CJR.org, basically profiling The Undefeated and the man behind The Undefeated. Tell us a little bit more about what The Undefeated's mission is. I think they're trying to operate in a space where they're trying to be like just a resource for black people and trying to not only do sports, but also kind of encompass what's happening in America and how to deal with it. So even though when I talked to them, they were very much about we do sports, they kind of do it in this interesting open arena where they, of course, they do coverage. They talk about games, but they actually have a lot of events also. They had a big event with Obama where he spoke at North Carolina A&T about political activism and just being open-minded for the young people there. Also, they just have done a lot of culture pieces. They've talked about respectability politics and just very much like uplifting pieces. I know they do things like after the election, you know, they did do pieces that were kind of more uplifting and just and what what do you do now and what does this mean for America? So Right. And I think, you know, they're operating under this inter- interesting premise that the best sports stories aren't about sports mm-hmm. uh, themselves. Um, and they're trying to branch out into having a broader discussion, as you said, which I, you know, that, correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, that's, that's sort of what ESPN is going for with a couple of different boutique efforts like this. This project, uh, as Carlette wrote about in her piece, started a long time ago. It was kind of after Bill Simmons had launched Grantland, which was the first 
sort of boutique site, as they're called at ESPN. Really high quality writing, great right. feature writing, sort of coverage of sports as a part of culture. Right, and more of a prestige project. It's not the thing that's going to bring in clicks, and, and it doesn't even necessarily have to make money, these boutique sites. Uh, 538 is the other one, which is headed by Nate Silver, of course, and covers politics, sports, science writing through a data journalism uh, lens. But The Undefeated's been around as an idea uh, for a while, and you wrote a little bit about that, about the history that led us to this point. Yeah, it was around for almost two years, believe it or not, but there was a lot of complications. Jason Whitlock was supposed to be the leader of The Undefeated, but there was a lot of different issues going on. I know most notably people said that he just wasn't didn't have leadership abilities and qualities and he didn't know how to manage a newsroom and expected a lot from people that you know just it's a new site and people don't know what they're doing I think it would be different to go to like the New York Times and be expected to write something because they've been around for so long and everybody kind of understands their style or knows what's happening. So, And just to jump in <laughs> for our listeners, Jason Whitlock is sort of like a prominent talking head within sports media. He's He makes a lot of appearances on uh, television shows, mm-hmm. on ESPN and elsewhere. Well, now, yeah, now he's, he's at, at Fox. Yeah, mm-hmm. he has a, a show now at Fox Sports 1. He's a longtime Kansas City Star columnist and then went right. to ESPN, had a falling out, came back, and then this trying to launch this project was... Uh, really just a disaster in a lot of ways. And the guy that came in and stabilized it is the guy that you spent the most time with, it seemed like, Kevin Merida. Yes. So Kevin Merida was the managing editor at the Washington Post. After everything went bad with Jason Whitlock, there was like a new rule established that they didn't want to have personalities or people that are usually like talking heads or whatever running a site. So that's especially why they picked him, because he just has, obviously, leadership and management style. He was a political editor and associate editor before so he just had all that experience under his belt and knew how to manage people and guide a newsroom and even talking to people in his past everyone said that he was very inspirational and motivational and I know we had a piece recently that talked about this you know the 10 ways to help manage a newsroom and going into 2017 and one of them was that you need to motivate your staff or else people won't know what to do and won't know what direction to take and we'll start to lose hope in the project. I think that's something that makes uh, Undefeated a bit different than these other boutique sites is each of them was built, we're talking now about Grantland and 538, they were built around a presence, a personality, Bill Simmons at Grantland, Nate Silver at 538, and initially the Undefeated was going to be Jason Whitlock's Black Grantland, as it, was, uh, as it was referred to in the early days before it had a name. Mm-hmm. And now they've taken this different track where they have an experienced newsroom leader. They hired some great writers. You mentioned, I think you mentioned Mike Wise, who mm-hmm. was at the Washington Post, uh, Jesse Washington, who has a long career in journalism, uh, Mark Spears, a great NBA writer, Jill mm-hmm. Hudson does great work on culture. So they've established this stable of really successful writers, but they have at the, the helm of it a guy who's uh, more in the background a little bit. Yeah, but I think it's it's definitely helped them be successful so far. Obviously, it's only been eight months since it's really been off the ground. But also, this was a section of their audience, which obviously is getting, you know, what they need through ESPN directly. But it's just like if they start this niche site, that's a new site for all of them to go and to have reading and articles that are supposed to be catered to the community. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what they do under a Trump presidency. They've had a moment with Obama at the town hall. They've had tons of pieces kind of about his interest. There's one up there now about his uh, interest in basketball. He's obviously a big sports fan, Mm -hmm. also obviously fits the black culture part of the site. Now we have a, a new administration coming in. Did they talk at all about what things are going to be like as they attempt to cover, as as Dave mentioned, a more political sporting environment and a 
a very different approach from Washington? It's funny because even though they do occupy different spaces, I think that they have this safe, they can fall back on sports basically and say like, we're not really political. So if they, if it's not kind of sports and kind of politics that they're not going to get deeply into it. But at the same time, we already see with different athletes and such that the two subjects are so melded together that it's obviously going to come up. And I think that it's obviously clear that they want to support the black community right. and kind of put those voices out there. So One of the interesting contexts this new site exists in is, is the fact that there's more and more discussion now about the lack of diversity in newsrooms. That could be racial diversity, that could be sexual diversity, that could be socioeconomic diversity in that context you have a lot of very prominent black writers at various publications who have really made names for themselves recently under the presidency of Barack Obama in particular. But with Undefeated, it's, it's actually publication focused on reaching the black community, but also run by majority black staff. Mm -hmm. So from reading your article, I got the sense that they, they really felt sort of like a sense of duty to make this work. Yeah, I think a lot of staffers and obviously Kevin Merida feels very proud that this project was able to take off and the fact that for two years, there was rumors that it was going to get cut, but John Skipper, ESPN's president, was very adamant that they wanted to do this and they wanted to, you know, carve out this niche and help this community. So I think the fact that it's off the ground now, you know, they really feel a responsibility and obligation to, to the black community and to bl possible black readers to just give them interesting content that speaks to them and speaks to the community. I also think it's interesting, and I talked a little bit about this in the piece, that Merida actually wasn't really in love with the idea of management like he was a great writer and he loved reporting and he did politics and even to think like when he first took his first management role he wasn't able to cover the Obama presidency which is like obviously a big deal so you know just kind of feeling like that this is something needed for the greater good and it's not being done in other places and it's really important you know like you said it's still young but just being under the ESPN umbrella they have this opportunity to reach large audiences that other black sites that have been around for a long time just don't have and don't have that reach and don't get that type of publicity on a normal basis. Well, that was Carlette Spike joining us on The Kicker. Carlette, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, we're moving on to maybe the biggest journalism story of the week and something that we discussed a lot within the CJR offices over the last couple of days. And uh, joining us for this second segment of The Kicker is Vanessa Gazzari, CJR's managing editor. Vanessa, thanks for being on. Thank you, Dave. On Tuesday night, CNN published an anonymously sourced report alleging that President Obama and President-elect Donald Trump had been briefed by intelligence agencies that Russian intelligence had tried to compromise the president-elect. Soon after, perhaps within hours, BuzzFeed published a set of memos including unverified details alleging that this attempt took place. So the decision to publish or not publish from BuzzFeed has sparked a firestorm of debate within the journalism community, and we were really, really grappling with this in a big way on Tuesday night. There was this immediate rush to ask, was it right? Should they have published it? And the early takes from a lot of the old guard media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all came to the consensus that you know this was the wrong decision you shouldn't just put unverified documents out there especially ones involving such you know strong and at times uh, lurid lurid yeah good <laughs> word lurid uh, descriptions of what our next president was doing in his time in Moscow with Ritz-Carlton and we really struggled with this in an email chain on Tuesday night 
you know, were unsure at first because there did seem to be some value in knowing what was behind the CNN report. Uh, we slept on it. We woke up to a few more condemnations of the decision. But in our, our morning meeting on Wednesday, we came to a different conclusion. And uh, later that afternoon, Vanessa gave voice to that in a piece on CJR. Yes, which has gotten a lot of response. I was saying this morning I now have trolls on Twitter um, <laughs> because, which is something as, <laughs> as everyone in this room knows, I don't, I'm not on Twitter enough to have trolls usually. So welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Way to make great, a big it's splash. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I'm um, really enjoying it. So yeah, I mean, I think that Ben Smith actually was right when he said in the memo that he wrote to staff at BuzzFeed about this that reasonable people can disagree about whether this was the right decision or not. And I, I think that was both a kind of a savvy thing for him to say, but also a true one. And so I've been really interested to read all the opinions on the other side. And I feel like it's been a great discussion for the media to have. And it was a good discussion for us to have at CJR. We actually came to the conclusion that we did for some reasons that weren't everybody's reasons either. So I mean, one of the things that I found really striking about the decision to publish these documents and why I thought it was it was ultimately the right decision for journalism was that I think already it's shown what more can be done now that the documents are out there so I mean there was a great piece in the New York Times this morning kind of detailing just the development of this document and how it was put together and and a little bit more about the person who put it together than what we knew before and I it wasn't the kind of piece where there was a huge scoop in there. I mean, they probably had been, that's the kind of information they've been gathering for weeks about this document. But I don't think that piece could have been written if the dossier hadn't been released. And I, I really just feel like as a, on the level of reporting, this was a smart move. So that's apart from, that's apart from ethics. And the ethics question is, is in some ways much more difficult. But I do think that, and I, you know, I think Ben Smith has said this, and you know, I'm interested in your guys' take on it too. But it, it, this is the age of leaks, right? And so, in the media, we're developing a practice around leaked documents and leaked information at, at a time when, I and mean, it's not like leaks are new, but the volume of the leaks that we're getting now from organizations like like WikiLeaks, famously the the Snowden leaks, which were just as a gigantic leak in scale. I think that the standard that some media were holding BuzzFeed to or holding everybody to, which is that, you know, everything in the, in the document would have to be verified by independent reporting before it could be written about, given that it was already in the national conversation at such a high level, it didn't really make sense to me. I grappled a lot with this one. I mean, first off, when I read the CNN report, it was very vague. It was sort of vaguely sourced, difficult to follow because it's a very complex subject. Soon after, when I was on my way home, BuzzFeed dropped its memos, and I was glued to my phone for like the next hour reading. Yeah, reading it on the subway. Like, I was reading like, like PDF documents on the subway. Exactly. Like zoom in on that yellow highlighted part. I was I was totally confused after the CNN report, and BuzzFeed. You know, we can debate the ethics. It did help me understand CNN's reporting a little bit more. And having said that, you have this one line in your piece where you say that criticism of BuzzFeed's decision is, is self-serving and self-righteous. And I, I do think it's important to weigh that decision to publish this from an anonymous source versus the decisions news organizations make 
every day of publishing information from anonymous sources, oftentimes from the national security community. I think there is a very strong case to make that you shouldn't publish this material, but in the end, I think the, the positive outcome from it outweighs any negative aspect of it. The other part of it is that this, as, as many news organizations have written, they had this information for weeks, if not months, and it took a very specific set of dominoes to fall for BuzzFeed to get to this point, right? It took the document existing, the document being passed around the highest levels of intelligence circles and government, the Gang of Eight getting it, and then eventually the, the intelligence community going and deciding, hey, this is important enough and this is widely known enough that we have to brief the president and the president-elect about this. At that point, it seems like CNN decided, okay, now that both Trump and Obama have been briefed on this, this is news. We're going to report about the briefing uh, without saying what the details were. And then it seemed like BuzzFeed got to the point where they were like, if we're going to be talking about this, let's actually show people what we're talking about. Do you think, Vanessa, that that, that chain of events shifted the ethics at all? If somebody had dumped this in October without that s series of events happening, would you still say it was the right thing to do? No, I mean, I think that's a really good point. To me, the key things here were that this was being read and talked about in the Senate. It was the basis, I think, for questioning of, you know, the FBI director. It was being forwarded to the FBI with a request from a senator to look into this. It was being briefed to President Obama and President-elect Trump. Intelligence reports have been leaked and published on much less. So, I mean, that to me is really interesting. I also, I think that I'm not a fan of redaction, and I don't think that as a journalist, I just, I wouldn't want to be involved in redacting a document before publishing it. The exception is information that would endanger an individual. But I think that in this case, uh, th there, are, there are some parts of the document that people t have talked a lot about, like the the compromat, compromising information about Donald Trump and whatever may have happened in hotel rooms in Russia that I think is n frankly not that interesting. I mean, to me, what's right. really interesting about this is a pattern of behavior that may have been going on between the guy who's going to be president of the United States and a foreign power with whom he's he's been really kind and, and generous uh, on all occasions in a way that he just isn't normally. <laughs> and very, so I mean, <laughs> and in a way that other U.S. politicians in his own party, in the Democratic Party, are not. Like, it's it's strange the way that he has approached Russia and Vladimir Putin. And it's also not a new story. I mean, the, the, you know, the stuff about his campaign and the hacking right. and stuff is new. But the story of real estate in New York and how it's intertwined with Russian interests is not like a new story. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I think part of what people are assuming, because we took this position, is that we think that these documents are factually true. What they contain is factually true. I actually honestly don't know, but I'm interested in finding out the answer to that. I think it's an important question for us to be asking. And so, you know, I want to do whatever as journalists we can do to chase down these details. And one thing that I, I struggle with in the piece is just how, how has this document or this set of documents been out there for, you know, a couple months in the hands of some of the top journalists in the United States, and we don't have... I don't feel like there's been a lot pinned down either way about this. I'm happy if somebody comes out and says, we, we learned that this didn't happen. That would make me feel better than just something floating around that's being briefed at very high levels that we just don't really know whether it happened or not. One interesting uh, part of this fed into 
some of the backlash to BuzzFeed's decision, which is that BuzzFeed has been the preeminent news organization crusading against fake news. They have very aggressively covered the changing information environment, how false information can spread across social networks, why that problem might be exacerbated now compared to what it was five years ago. So it almost you know, it's ironic in a sense from many people's perspectives that BuzzFeed was a news organization to actually put this material out there. That very well could be fake news. Yeah, but I, I think equating it to fake news is really dangerous. And I, and I noticed, I mean, this was happening a little bit in this interview that Ben Smith did with Chuck Todd last night where it was weird. I felt like Chuck Todd made this assumption, but I also felt like in a way Ben Smith didn't push back as much as I would have liked to have seen him. I don't know what his views on this are at all, but against just tarring this as fake news and saying that, oh, well, this is definitely false, so why did you publish it? Like I said, we don't know if it's true, we don't know if it's false. It seems really different to me from fake news. This is uh, just tangentially related, but as we enter this new era of leaks, as you called it, and you know, a new media landscape, I find it interesting that BuzzFeed, a former cat clickbait site, which has become, and we should be clear about this, has become a really excellent journalistic outlet was the one to do this. And it wasn't a newspaper. It wasn't a cable network. It was a digital-only outlet. That didn't exist 10 years ago. Right. You know, maybe the fact that they are at a younger, newer place gives them the freedom to adapt quicker if this is the, the new era that we're in. I think there's also, I mean, this is a really tough one for a lot of big, heavy hitters in the media sphere because there are a lot of people chasing this story right now. People really want they want to be the one to put the pieces together if this is real and or if there's you know if it's not real it's a huge story of our moment and the media is definitely very interested in, in a lot of things that have come up around Trump um, and various connections he has especially to the Russians but others too and so I think that there's a competitive aspect to this story that that was why you know I mean the the words I used in the piece about it being, you know, self-serving. Self yeah, yeah, I think the self-righteous thing is more about we would never do that, which I frankly don't know if that's the case. <laughs> um, but the but the self-serving part, I mean, I think that it's more complicated. I think that media is still really competitive. I don't know who was waiting to push the button to publish that when BuzzFeed published it or whether there were others that, who, that were thinking seriously about that. It seemed like people took a very high tone when speaking about it afterwards, but it didn't seem crazy to me in that way. I, I find it interesting, like, the outrage just seems a little outsized to me at times, and given, given things that, that are going wrong with the media in general and the, and the amount of, like, room there is to criticize. Some of the contrarians on Twitter pointed out that the media also published basically unverified information on the FBI's, quote-unquote, reopened email investigation onto Hillary Clinton. So to apply what appears to be a different standard to BuzzFeed now is a little disingenuous. And that was Vanessa Gazzari, CJR's managing editor. We want to thank her for her time on the show. You should read her piece at cjr.org. We wanted to move on to our final topic this week, which is the day following BuzzFeed's publication of those memos that we just mentioned. Donald Trump held his first press conference in about 160, 170 days or so, so since before he was elected, in the belly of Trump Tower. And you were there. And I was there. It was an absolute zoo, as you could imagine. The room was packed with probably two or 300 journalists, a few dozen camera crews. There were people sitting on the floor. It was sort of a surreal feeling within the room. I, me personally, I didn't really expect that moment to ever come, especially after the BuzzFeed uh, drop on Tuesday night. I expected Trump to cancel. Yeah, I think uh, that was the question people were 
dealing with on Tuesday night was Willie Irwoni. But you wrote a nice piece for our site uh, about the the scene there, uh, kind of a narrative look at the scene, and you called it uh, a stunt. Yeah, it was definitely a stunt. I mean, we had before the press conference started, a couple of Trump aides rolled out all of these reams of folders which they laid out in these giant stacks on a long table next to the lectern and over the course of this press conference they made several references to these stacks of papers basically saying that they were proof that Donald Trump had turned over a lot of his business interests to his son but they never shared any of those folders with reporters and after the event when a few people from the crowd went up to actually try to take a look at these pieces of paper Trump aides basically said, no, get out of here, and they took the papers away. And I use the word stunt because this event Trump used very deftly, and it, it's sort of like a window to how he continuously has an upper hand over, over the press. And he had this one exchange that was fairly notable with uh, CNN's Jim Acosta, who's one of their senior White House correspondents. He essentially bashed CNN in one of his answers that he gave. He called them fake news. And Acosta basically shot back saying, Mr. Trump, you're criticizing our news organization. Please allow us to ask you a question so we could clear things up. Donald Trump basically said, no, you're fake news. I'm not going to give you a question. I'm paraphrasing here. And he instead pointed at someone else, and someone else from the crowd asked a question. And there was just so many people in the room trying to get one of these prized opportunities to ask a question. It almost seemed inevitable that Jim Acosta was just going to be made an example of when right. he was protesting, and someone else is going to take his place. And it, it, to me, you know, writing the piece later on, it seemed like it was pretty emblematic of the broader collective action problem within the media. And this might have been even easier to see from TV, because I imagine in the room, everybody's shouting, everybody's trying right. to get their question out. But watching it's it on chaos. television, when you could hear through the, the crowd mics, I guess, Jim Acosta standing and yelling and saying, you've been attacking my outlet, give us a chance. And Trump really kind of turned to him, pointed his finger at him and says, no, not you, no, you are fake news. You right. don't get a question. Right. There was this weird moment then, as, as you're kind of taken aback by that, and then he just turned to the next journalist and, and pointed, and they went ahead with it. And, you know, I, I think, as you mentioned, this is a, a preview of what's to come and, and really a reflection on what's already happened. Donald Trump has made it clear he's not afraid to ban outlets to attack reporters by name, as he did with Katie Turr of NBC during the, uh, the campaign. And we, as, a, as an industry, I think, need to be prepared for those moments. Because again, once you're in the room and once everything's happening, it, it's quick, it's loud, it's tough to on the spot react. But we need to decide what we're going to do. Uh, you know, there was this moment during the Obama administration, I forget which department the briefing was for, but essentially they said Fox News doesn't get to come. And all of the other outlets said, well, then we're not doing the interview. And the Obama administration backed down. Right. Um, I think we need to, to be prepared for those sort of moments and think about how are we going to handle it? Should the other journalists in a moment like yesterday say, no, no, you answer Jim's question. Um, right. Give Sienna, you've been attacking them, give them a chance to respond. Right. I definitely think we need to think about more ways in which we can institutionally come to an agreement on how to treat Trump, how to have a better, more constructive relationship with President Trump. But I think one of the difficulties of that, and this came through yesterday in a very big way, is that if you if you had a room where you only had reporters for the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, Fox, sort of like the big established players, and Trump berated Jim Acosta, I'm sure Maggie Haberman from the New York Times would say, hey, no, that's screwed up. You can't just bash the journalist and try to move on. But I mean, the guy sitting next to me was from RT. Another woman next to me was from a state-backed media outlet from China. 
there's two or 300 people in the room. Everyone was trying to get their question answered. There was yelling, there was scrambling. And I think that's just like a good image of what the broader media environment is. So it, we're not exactly playing like under the same conditions that we were maybe 10 or 20 years right. ago. Certainly not, not 20 years ago and, and in a lot of ways even five to ten years ago, like you said. I mean, if there is some sort of collective action among the, the journalists uh, that are covering the president, well, Donald Trump can always go on Sean Hannity's show and get his right. message out there, or he can just turn to Twitter and get his message directly to the people. So we're in this really new environment uh, when it comes to technology and the fracturing of our industry and the number of outlets covering the, the White House. But I, it was just a striking moment to, to watch, and I'm sure right. I wanted to be there for, that I kind of felt like, hey, this is going to happen. We need to think about how to handle it. Right. That. I think one of the interesting things about it being there as well, uh, and you obviously had a different take on it because you were watching on TV, yeah. and this sort of plays into how we deal with Trump when he gives of official statements or press conferences as well, is that I was probably halfway back in the room. I could not hear what Jim Acosta was saying at all. I could hear Donald Trump berating him, but I really couldn't get a sense of what was going on until Trump started yelling. So I feel like a lot of reporters in the room probably couldn't even hear Acosta ask his questions because it's such a crazy, crazy environment. So that, that makes it a little bit harder oh, yeah, uh, to like respond to it in a really fast way. So I think like going forward, it would be helpful if A, we have you know a microphone that gets circulated around so people can actually hear what questions are being asked. And that's especially important given that Trump has a very interesting relationship with the truth, to say the least. So it's important to know in what context he's answering specific questions and how far he's straying from the actual you know, aim of the questions. Right. And also, this falls on journalists as well. It's like, man, you got to stop <laughs> with your six-part <laughs> questions, oh man. Like, I'm going to no ask you about Iran and healthcare and the wall. And, the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and if you could answer that three-part question. Nobody in the room can follow what right. you're asking, least of all the guy behind the lectern. Yeah. But when you get your moment in one of these press conferences, especially with that many journalists, you want to you wanna own your moment, right? You right. want to say, you know, I'm trying to get my time in the spotlight. And it's not necessarily grandstanding. It's just it's been five months. Right. There's a lot to ask him so about. So much to ask for. Um, yeah. But I do think we saw it. Uh, finally, the last question of the, the press conference was Cecile Vega. She asked a yes or no question. Can you unequivocally state that, and again, I'm not using her exact words, but basically, can you unequivocally state that neither you nor any member of your campaign had contact with Russian agents? And also, and then uh, asked a second part of the question, right. uh, which he answered the second part of the question, sure. but on camera never responded to right. a very simple yes or no question. And, and people watching aren't going to necessarily get that. And a lot of people in the room probably couldn't hear exactly right. what she'd asked the first time around, so it's just difficult to follow right. exactly what's going on. So one takeaway is for journalists, keep your questions short, direct, and simple. Right, and I also think that, you know, that sort of having a multi-part question sort of eliminates the natural advantage having a press conference gives journalists. You as a journalist should not be asking one question and then before you even hear an answer, asking a follow-up question to that, which is something that happened yesterday. One of the benefits of having 200 journalists in the room is that if I ask a pointed question of Donald Trump, then the guy or gal next to me can you know, notice something differently in his answer than I notice and then ask a different, more pointed follow-up to that. And if you have a single question that it doesn't get answered and he tries to move on, this goes again to collective action and who knows if this is realistic, but if he refuses to answer a question and we do have a microphone in the room so others can hear what the question is, that question can be repeated until there's an answer. And this is, again, 
This is why press conferences are important and why we've been asking for the president-elect to have one. Right. Hopefully there will be more. Right. I mean, I'm not going to bank on it. But it was just, it was just funny being there as well because it sort of reminded me of, of my days as a uh, Cub reporting intern for Newsday, maybe five or six years back, they had me covering cops and courts a little bit, and they'd send you to these press conferences where you have the local DA and some cops that come up. They made a heroin bust, or they busted a prostitution ring, or whatever. They lay out all this cash and drugs on the table. I vividly remember at one point a diamond chain that was shaped in <laughs> the shape of Long Island, which is my personal favorite uh, piece of bling I've ever seen. And that's basically what Trump did yesterday. He, ha he had his props. He had the folders on the table. He brought in a quote-unquote expert to come in, this lawyer who was poorly described. No one really knew Halftime show. Yeah. Halftime show. She filibustered for about 20, 30 minutes, even though no one really wanted to hear her talk as a compared to Trump. And he ended up taking maybe seven or so questions. And right. it, it, it was just, from my perspective, my vantage point being there, I mean, it, it, it seemed to be pulled off beautifully. The drugs on the table, all the Wire <laughs> fans listening will uh, <laughs> remember that. So what do you think? In, in summation, we've been asking for Trump to right. uh, come answer our questions. He did that. Not all the questions, obviously, we have, and we hope there will be more. But was this a win for Trump in a publicity sense of things? I certainly don't think it was a loss for him if we're sort of evalu evaluating the politics of the situation. But I do think for the media, this does show a little bit of the challenges we're going to face going forward. He didn't have a press conference for five months. So much happened over the course of those five months. There were so many questions to ask from all the news that happened over that span of time. It almost seemed impossible to ask any pointed question about any one of those things, especially the bombshell news that had broken the night before. If he conducts a PR strategy that has these very, very far-flung press conferences, that does sort of give him the upper hand in terms of being able to avert accountability on news of the day or anything that's breaking. There's this piece on the New York Times upshot today that I think is really smart that touches on what you were just talking about, which is titled, Trump shows how to smother a scandal with a bigger story. And essentially, right. essentially the argument that Brendan Nyhan's making is that if there's so much that's happened, right. The, and this isn't an original thought, you know, people have been talking about this during the campaign, but because so much is swirling around Trump, when we get only these every few months press conferences, there's just too much to ask about, and it's tough to pin him down on any one issue because, well, yeah, we want to ask about Russia, but what are you going to do about the wall, and when are you repealing Obamacare, right. and uh, what's going on with Jeff Sessions? There's just, there's too much to cover, and so he can stand there for an hour with a halftime show, and... and we still feel like, well, there's so much more we have to get to. The last point I wanted to bring up, uh, which I thought was an interesting takeaway from the conference, is that over probably about an hour or so, Trump, his incoming press secretary, Sean Spicer, and then also Vice President-elect Mike Pence, used the term fake news oh, by God. my count eight times. Trump called CNN fake news directly. He insulted BBC News as well. He called BuzzFeed a failing pile of garbage. <laughs> it was just clear from this you know, snapshot here that he's going to pursue the same anti-media invective that he did over the course of the campaign. Well, so you're saying you don't expect him to change completely after January 20th? <laughs> no, Trump is the same Trump. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to Jorge Ramos yesterday because he had experience being kicked out of a Trump press conference during the campaign out in Iowa. And his comment was, I've been dealing with Latin American presidents and dictators all my life. I understand how to do this. Right. And it's interesting that, well, you know, some of the advice we're getting is from uh, journalists who have been working in other countries just saying, 
this is how you deal with a, a, a big man culture like this. Um, right. We're going to have to adjust. Yeah, I think the, the question is really how quickly journalists adapt to start reporting around Trump uh, in lieu of sort of this official access and this official constructive relationship that a lot of past presidents have had with the press. In the meantime, when he does hold his next press conference at Trump Tower, yours truly will be there in the thick of things to deliver another fly on the wall report. And with that, I'd like to say goodbye again this week, and thanks, Pete Vernon, for being on the show again. Thanks for having me. And I am Dave Uberti. I'm a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review. We'll be back next week to talk through the biggest media news of the week. See you then. That's our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Subscribe to our program on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Also go to CJR.org, become a member of Columbia Journalism Review. You get a few print issues a year. You get a weekly newsletter authored by yours truly. And also some special events and offerings from our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope. Once again, that's CJR.org, and we will see you next week.